0: Okay, we're on the air. Um, okay, I want to teach you a text that I think you probably all know, at least all know the outcome of. I want to teach it to you first uh, in a way that I think will be different and challenging, unless you already, um, you already figured it out, in which case you can apply for a faculty position in a few years. Um, and then um, I want to try and take, if we have, assuming we have time, I want to try and take that text a few steps deeper and having taken the text a few steps deeper, then I want to try and show you ways in which you can use the deeper way of reading that text to create halakha in situations where there isn't yet halakha, um, and create it in a way which I hope does not appear arbitrary, but also is not obvious. You have to decide, right, so it's actually, you know, maybe, the, maybe the halakha should be the way, maybe the halakha shouldn't be that way. All uh, right, and then leave that as a model for you of what it is to be in the room, when halakha is being constructed, as opposed to having the halakha, right, the halakha that's already been constructed, taught to you. Right? There are lots of areas where halakha is fairly, right, is fairly finished and and, and all, all we, you know, and there isn't so much room except for extraordinary figures to be created. Um, and then there's places where there just isn't halakha yet. Okay, so we'll talk about some of those places. Here we go. The, the issue we're gonna talk about is um, what are the things that you have to die rather than do? okay? And all of you already know the answer to those things, right? that's one of the things you learn in elementary school, right? How many, how many things right are there that are you hearing about? Three. Three, okay, great. Okay, that, that was a trick question if I wanted it to really be, you know, because three or four or five, <laughs> right? Maybe, and it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's public or not, but we'll say three, okay? We'll be, we'll be straightforward. And those three are? Okay, uh, I like it that you say even though the, the Gemara sometimes says and it makes an, an important difference, but for now we'll say all those, we'll say uh, Okay, the Gemara we're going to learn about is uh, how we know those things. Okay, how do, we know, how, do, how do we know that those are the three things that are I want to think about is what do you think, like, how do you think one ought to know things like this? And one of the questions you always have to ask in halacha is, suppose I knew nothing, I was just starting from scratch. What would I think the halacha should be? Uh, why does it matter whether that, whether, because the answer is, so there's, um, in Midrash halacha. so you'll find that sometimes there are things called a binyan av, and there are things called the chidush. Okay, binyan av is when the Torah teaches the law in one place, and we say, well, the Torah teaches the law in that place. It must be true everywhere. A chidush is when we say the Torah teaches us the law in that place and nowhere else. How do we know the difference? What's the difference between? Right? When, I'm, when I look at a drasha in Chazal and I ask myself this drasha, should this drasha be a binyan av uh, or should this drasha be a chidush? For example, Eid Zomim, right? It's a classic chidush. Aizomim right, makes no sense. Why do you believe the second witness is not the first witnesses? So we say aizomim chidushu and you're vein lechabo el chidushu. You can't expand the laws of aizomim to anything else. So what's the difference between whether it's a chidush or a binyan Yes. I think there are certain words idea. like if there's two pesukim on something, then you can't apply. Ah, very nice. So that's so there are technical things that might prevent the binyan right? Whether you can, but snakes tovim, sharks tovim, good. But here we only have one pesuk, so there's no technical barrier to making the binyan av. By it's just but by, by islam only, only one Pasuk. Nobody says there's a technical reason. So there's no technical reason what's the difference between a binina and, and a and a khidush? yes. If, if it's gonna be logically relevant in other places, then you can apply the same rules in other places, but if there's no other case that's like equivalent or, or like the Yalvin, then you justify that. Right, but that's nice, but then it wouldn't be we wouldn't have to say it's a khirush, there's no place to apply it. The whole point of saying it's a finisher, there is a place it's logically relevant. And we're not going to apply it. Okay. Good, yes. I don't know if this is like similar to what Adina was saying, but giving an av can be more of a category and finish is going can be more like a specific thing. I don't know if like that. So you could try that and see if you could claim that the Indian Avs are somehow conceptual and fiducium or not, but it won't work. But it's a nice try, and I could be wrong. So you should go through Shas after this, after this year, and see, right, and see if it's right or not. Because it's a perfectly reasonable thesis. Uh, I'm going to set an alternative thesis. The alternative thesis is that a binah is something that you would, ha- that you pretty much agree with anyway, and a chiddush is something that you think, wow, I would never have thought that. So whether a drasha is a chiddush or binah depends on what your premise, right, what your default setting was. If the Binyan av agrees with your default setting, then okay, why not extend it? If the Binyan av disagrees, then that's a chiddush, right? That's what it means, it's a chiddush. I wouldn't have thought of it. Okay, so it's important every time you approach a law to ask yourself, this is because you, you might think, no, I'm supposed to turn my mind off and just accept what it says. But what it says depends on what you thought previously. Okay, yes, what was your question? You're just kind of like, yeah. You're, meaning when you approach halakha that makes sense with your intuition, then that's problematic if you do not you can apply it on its basis. And if you approach it, it's not intuitive. Then can... Yeah. Okay. But I cheated. So let's let, let me uncheat now. Okay. What I what I what I did was claim this is how Chazal approached interpretation of Torah. Now uh, the question of whether you should do the same thing when you approach halakha, which is not midrash halakha, I think it's a reasonable uh, general extension. But it's not, right, but I can't tell you that that's how, right, that, that's, how, that's how it looks. I could, you know, we could go through lots of shavud and see that, yeah, look, people tend to extend halachot that makes that, that, that makes sensible. But I used to, um, I read an article years ago called, about a process called chokification. Chokification is when a law that people used to think makes sense stops making sense. You're like, wow! I used to think that made sense, and like, you know, I used to think, let's say, you know, easy example. Of it. I used to think that the reason that you can't eat pig is because it because it gives you trichinosis, right? But now you don't catch right now trichinosis is not something people catch. We have immunity against it, so now the law against eating pigs becomes a chok, right? Yesterday it was a it was a mishpat, leaving those terms for beaver now, and now it's a chok because it's, the reason I had doesn't apply anymore. So right, so that's right. So when you chokify something, you tend to narrow it. Um, right, and there are all sorts of areas where that um, where that applies. Particularly, it applies you know, in many areas of things that women were discouraged from doing halachically. Uh, right? There were there were cultures in which all of those were mishpatim, and then there are cultures where those where you know, where those things becomes chukim. And so, what we do is we say, okay, the things that are halakha we're just going to apply them exactly where they are, but we're not going to extend them because they don't make any sense to us. Okay. And over time, right? That right? That's that's a process of thinking about law. Yes. Doesn't this become highly subjective? Like one person might think it's pretty clear and obvious and should be applied, another of might unlike other halakhic disciplines where everyone agrees about everything. Right, so you put it in like we're highly subjective, right? No, it's subjective. There is no way to escape subjectivity. Now how, right, how that leaves you, right, that, you know, creates, you know, one of my friends was talking about the epistemological abyss that people can get thrown into sometimes, right, if you can't have absolute certainty. Yeah, but the answer is, yes, it, it allows subjectivity to enter as does everything else. That would be my, my answer. Then we can talk about whether it allows more or less subjectivity, right, more rigorous, right, whether it allows more of an objective check in subjectivity than other systems, things like that. Okay, so with that as a, with that as a basic background, so I'll ask you the question, if, I, right, if you're sitting, let's say, in an attic in the, in the city of Lud, and somebody comes along and asks you, what are the things that you have to die rather than commit? What's your default setting? Yes? I think as as... Let's not get there yet. So what's your default setting. Let's start with the first I question. The yeah, good. we will get there. But let, I wanted to ask, like, I'll ask the question very broadly. Do you think that you have to justify the things that you have to die for? Or they have to justify the things you don't have to die for. Is there a working premise that, well, God commanded it, so why would I ever be allowed to violate it just to save my life? Or is your working premise how could God command me to die? Okay, yes. I think naturally you're like, you have to justify. You wanna justify why I bought like Okay, you wanna justify why. Um, you' don't have to die. you don't have to die for something rather than justify that I have to die for something. So you want to do that. but what? Right? want to justify why you don't have to die. But what do you think? If you have to justify you it, down, that means you're deep you diagnoser. You 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 uh, okay, right. You That's a really complicated just, thing, right? You have to die yeah, really complicated thing. Okay, so let's take yes. <laughs> just like the opposite end of the spectrum is foodcroftmanfish. Are we examining that in the same way? How do we know where the nefesh is? So let's start with the question, right? So how do we know that, how do we know that B'Kulach Nefesh, right? So B'Kulach Nefesh is the answer. The answer is that Pikulach Nefesh creates a general halachic default that, right, that you don't have to die. Um, okay, yes. I think V'chaibahem, I guess it's that. Good, so, right, so V'chaibahem is, right, is the pasuk that teaches us that, right, that you don't, but now the question is, is v'chai b'hem a or a And it's really interesting, because you look at the sugya, you'll see that there are, like, seven different psukim quoted. Where it says, how do we know that p'chai nefesh is doche shabbat? And it quotes seven different psukim. And the one we accept, the b'hem, is given by an amora. So it's one of those odd sugyot where we reject all the tanayim and paskin like an amora. And, right, and it seems like nobody disagrees with the outcome. Nobody asks the question. Ha the question they ask is. So it seems reasonable to argue that actually right, that because makes sense, right? And this just happens to be the pasuk we cite for it. But the pasuk confirms something we already thought, maybe, or maybe not. That there are gemaras. Right? And you all know that this is a question of the makabim, right? 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 The question whether they were allowed to fight on Shabbat or not, and. They originally thought they were not allowed to fight on Shabbat, and then reality kind of struck them in the face. And somebody said, nah, let's fight. Let's fight on Shabbat." Right? It doesn't work very well. Um, okay. So now we have this v'chaybahem, and, right? and now we're trying to figure out what are the what are the things that are not included in the Right? Right? How far does the Benin av not stretch? Okay. So we right? so we're going to end up with three of them. So how do we know about a vodazara? So a vodazara comes from. Do, do you all know where do we get the idea that you have to die rather than commit a vodazara? So we get it from. You can look at the search, the search sheet now. All right, the vodazara on we're, we're on the second uh, the second paragraph. The, um, I mean, the Gemara says we have a which seems to suggest that um, right that the chayben here is quoted the even though in the yuma which is quote, it's quoted name of Shmuel. So the Gemara says Inu, the people who think that you have to die rather than commit a zara and now in the third paragraph, the Amurk they follow the position of the Tana Rabbiazer, Tatania, the Hafdah Shamalokeha, Bekholo Vabchha, Odecha. Okay, so there are actually two different ways you can get it from the words, but there seems to be a consensus that we get it somehow from the words. You should love God with all your heart. Does that automatically tell you that you have to die rather than commit a Vodasara? No. So here again, we have a pasuk that seems to confirm something that we already think makes sense. I always out, we have to figure out why does it make sense to people that you should die rather than, right, you should, that you should die rather than commit a mitzvah. Okay, that's but but epistemologically, right? Epistemologically is a big word. It means like how we right, how we know something. Epistemologically, I can say, look, but I don't have to rely on my certainty. In the end, I have anchored this knowledge in a pasuk. And if you ask me the question, if I ask you up front, like before I tell somebody to die because God wants them to, it's very reasonable to say, you need a pasuk for that. otherwise we worry like that, it seems too subjective. Okay, so now we found a pasuk. It's not obvious the pasuk means that, but it's reasonable for the pasuk to mean that. Okay. So now the Gemara says, okay, what about Gilei HaRaiyot? So the Gemara says, Gilei HaRaiyot, Ushvichut Damim, Rebbi. so the derivation of Gilei and Damim, follows Rebbi's interpretation of a Particular Pasuk. What is Rebbe's interpretation? Because the Pasuk this says, <laughs> that just like when a man arises against his fellow and murders him, this is just like it. Okay, what is this? This is adulterous rape. We're gonna, for the time being, we're gonna leave the rape out of the equation and just say it's adultery, because that's what the Gemara does. And so we say, okay, so the way we know. That you have to, at least the way you know, that men have to, which is also a machloket rishonim, um, all right, have to have to die rather than commit adultery, is because there's an analogy drawn in the Torah between adultery and murder. Okay, so now we got a down. There's a pasuk, and we got gilai down. There's a pasuk. Sure. Yeah. Gilai is only following a vodazara. It's not gilai is separate from vodazara. Sorry, I mean following murder. It's only following murder. Exactly right. No, 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 it's not, it's, it's derived from murder. It's, not, it's just like you have to die rather than commit murder, so too you have to die rather than commit adultery. Right, it's an analogy. But the present, right, you only know that you have to die rather than commit adultery because you already know that you have to die rather than commit murder. And here, it's not obvious that there's a rationale that you should have to die rather than commit adultery. But here we're just relying on the verse. Right here, we would say that this is a chiddush. You have to die rather than commit adultery. I say to the point: there's a machloke about whether women have to. Maybe it only applies to men. Okay, so now the Gemara says, "Good." So you tell me, you just taught me that I have to die rather than commit adultery because I have to die rather than commit murder. How do I know that I have to die rather than commit murder? So here's the Gemara says: "Raseach gufe." We're in the fifth paragraph now. "Raseach gufe minol." Right? How do I know? That I, have to, that I have to die rather than commit murder um, itself. So the Gemara, the Gemara says, "Svarahu." There's no pasuk. It's just, as you said, it's obvious. And then we tell a story. We have a story of somebody who came in front of the Amor Raba or Raba. if you have a divin girsah, and he said, the Lord of my, my, my feudal Lord, whatever it may be, um, right, said to me, "Zil Go kill some. go kill that other person or I'll kill you. Um, and what should I do? Can I kill the other person to save myself? And the answer was, uh, let them kill let, right, let the other person kill you and let you not right, and you can't kill the third party. Why? Who says your blood is redder, maybe their blood is redder? Is that what was obvious to you? Okay, interesting. You know, I was just listening to a um, the advisory opinions uh, uh, podcast from a a news site called The Dispatch, um, which where one of the you know where they were debating recent abortion restrictions, and one of the Sarah Isgra, one of the hosts said, you know, look, if there's a if there's God forbid, there's a three year old holding a gun, you're allowed to shoot them. And I said, really, that's obvious. She said, obvious. Yeah, no, I don't know. I don't know. It's obvious. So some people it's obvious, some people it's not. How far does it go? And my friends yesterday were saying, like, do we think this applies even, um, well, let's see, how, right, how far do we take this rule? Okay, let's, let's, um, let, me take, let me tell you what I think is astounding about this, and then we'll go try and talk about what it, what it means. What is astounding about this is that we're telling you that there's a, an analogy in the Torah, that only makes sense if you already have a moral intuition. You can't know that, that adultery is your hergavayavur unless you already know that murder is your hergavayavur, because adultery is only derived from murder. And murder, there's no pasuk for it at all. There's just a moral intuition. So there are ideas. There are moral ideas you have to have in your head, otherwise you can't. Otherwise you can't get at least halacha right, maybe all of Torah right. So that's a very powerful claim, right? That you can, that you, can that, you know, that if you, um, right, that they are just moral premises that are prior to Torah or at least prior to halakha. Um, okay, so that's the first you way know, so how many of them are there? That's the only one, right? That's a really, right, that's a really powerful. What, what does it mean? Does it mean, I want to argue, it means that you should be able to test everything else in Halacha and say, does it agree with this or not? If you have something in halakha that is incompatible with this claim, then you should say, well, that must be wrong, because this claim is prior to halakha. We get halakha from it, not it from halakha. Right, so what makes it even more astounding is that this farah, which we just said you know, is prior to halakha and essential everything, is actually explicitly against the pasuk. Because right, so let's take and as against it's against actually against a lot of halacha. Okay, so we'll take a look at the uh, it's there. There's one other source for it. We should say right. There's a, there's the Mishnah Halot, which is the next source on the page, where the Mishnah says that uh, abortion is permitted before the head of the fetus emerges, but once the fetus becomes an infant, ain doch and nefesh replay nefesh. Right. This is a direct. This is a direct rejection of that opinion on the, on the podcast. Right, even though there's nothing different, obviously, about the moral intention between a fetus and an infant, whether its head has emerged or not, but you can intervene to save the life of the mother before the head emerges and not afterwards. Why? Because, Ein because who says the mother's blood is better than the, than the infant's? But, uh, but the mother's blood somehow is better than the, than the fetus's. That's a really interesting claim. It has to be worked out. Okay, but then we have a, uh, another gemara that you probably are familiar with. Um, there's a pasuk which says, B'chei imach. in context it's talking about interest and sometimes I learn it as a uh, statement about whether you have to return interest that you charge illegally. But the Gemara then says, but there's another, the position that doesn't use it about interest in that regard uses it for a different purpose, which is a story, and now we quote a Breitah, and the Breitah tells us the famous story of two people walking in the desert, and one of them is holding a canteen of water, and there's a machloka between Ben Pesara, who may or may not be a real person, and Rabbi Akiva. Ben Pesara says, that um, they, should, they should split the water even though that way both of them will die before they get back to civilization and let not one of them see the, let not one of them see the death of his fellow. Until Rabbi Kiva comes along and says your brother shall live with you your life precedes that of your brother. What? Who says your brother is rather than his? Yeah. Sure, but that difference has nothing to do with whose blood is redder, All right? Once I know that there's a pasuk which says that the and I know that there's a svarah which says me so I have to engage in casuistry. I have to say this is talking about this case and that's talking about that case. But if you ask me, right? If you ask me, right? Based on based on other biblical interpretation, is one, is your blood redder than other person's? Yes. And yet. Despite the fact that Rabbi Akiva interpreted this verse to say that you can choose your life over your brothers, Rava interpreted the verse to say that you can't, and we have to try and distinguish. So that's really interesting and complicated, right? How can we say this is a prior principle? How do we ever get this to be a svara when it's against the pasuk, and yet we still have to live with the pasuk? Yeah. I feel like you could say that the principle, like the, the moral premise, that you can't assume that your blood is better than someone else's. That's what comes first, and that's like intuition. But the drusha that Rabbi Akiva makes kind of goes against that intuition. He's saying, yeah, there's an exception to that understanding. Good. So we could say Rabbi Akiva's drusha is a chiddush, and therefore we're going to limit it to the narrowest possible range of cases, and usually you can't choose your life for somebody else's. an interesting question is going to be what about third parties? The third parties have a right to choose one party over another. The Rebbe Kiva means, okay, right? That means you're allowed to choose among lives. And so, for example, uh, one of my friends um, came to yell at me about the, he listen to the tape of the shiurah I gave yesterday. <laughs> um said, like, you, do you really think that the halacha is that you can't choose your child over somebody else's? I don't know. Whereas, which, which do we say that the given is, right? Who says, who says your blood is rarer than somebody else's? Does that mean that nobody's blood is rarer than anybody else's? Is that what it means? You can't choose among lies? So let's take a look now at um, in a, an article by Diana Ivan Binstock of England. It um, talks about a particular. Actually I actually left out one other thing. One, there are two other things you should know about which seem to contradict this. One is his mission in Horios, uh, which seems to create a, an order of uh, saving lives, um, which includes men being before women and Kohanim being before, Ghanim being before uh, Levium. And all sorts of things like that. And the interesting thing is that even though it's an explicit Mishnah, it seems that nobody paskins that way, and possibly that nobody ever paskins that way. Even though nobody, agree- almost nobody, says that we don't paskin like the Mishnah. And it's really fascinating to read Trivot and have the Trivot explain why it is that even though there's a Mishnah Harios that says this, we don't paskin that way. Uh, Dayan, uh, Rabbi Rachman interestingly, claimed that you'll never find anybody in a code quoting it as meaning that. They always, they always make it mean things like who gets fed first in certain kinds of situations. But contemporary post often get to situations and um, say things like, but it's not our minhag, or it would be difficult to apply it in practice, but nobody does. Almost nobody. Okay. Let's take a look at how Diane Binstock handles his case. His Norman Jewish law follows the view of Rabbi Kiba. Nonetheless, there's still a range of discussion on this issue. What if neither person has a bottle of water instead said a third person has a spare bottle? Who should he give it to? A number of years ago, I discussed this question with Rabbi Professor Moshe Tendler, the son-in-law of the late Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the leading halachic authority in America in the second half of the 20th century. Um, he told me that in the 1940s, his father-in-law was telephoned by the chief rabbi of Israel, Isaac Herzog, concerning a shortage of penicillin at Israeli hospitals. Rabbi Feinstein said the doctor should give the medication to the first patient he came to who needed it. And he said, on this basis, there'll be no discrimination based on age or other health problems. Each patient is treated equally. Okay, so Rav Moshe reached the results, apparently, and i Herzog then said it was correct. When you had, when penicillin was a rare drug, and you had illnesses spreading that could be fatal if you didn't give people penicillin. So you gave the penicillin to the first person you, the first patient you met. Because the guiding principle in triage is not only who says your blood is rather than his, who said A's blood is rather than B? What happens if you meet two patients at the exact same time and the dose of penicillin is only enough to save one of them? <laughs> right, it's an interesting question, right? So Ben Pizarro says we split, right, they split the water and they both die. Um, does that apply only because, pardon? Yes, it's almost like saying cut the baby in half. Excellent, <laughs> almost like saying cut the baby in half. But the might be different because there, at least, the water has some effect. It just happens as an external result, which is that the water's effect is going to run out too soon. Whereas maybe that dose of penicillin has no use for anybody. Um, so what are we really right? So the question is: Is this a um, a reasonable outcome? And is it the is it the necessary outcome of taking as a principle as emotions seem to do that the from the first principle should be, and we see how Diane Binstock frames it, right? very modern language, no discrimination. All people, right? Who says one person's blood is redder than another's? Uh, so I think that, let me introduce another, uh, 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 let's, let's talk about what this means, who says your blood is redder than his. So Tosford comes up with an interesting test case. Tosford says, does this, does, when you say that I can't say that my blood is redder than yours, can I say that your blood is redder than mine? Is it only designed to restrain my self interest Is it designed, is it designed to, to even to restrain me in third party cases, like design me from judging people? Or is it actually an imperative, I'm not allowed to choose among lives? To us, just hold that the logic is reversible and you can't, choose, you can't choose somebody else's life over yours either. They come with a really fancy case in which you murder somebody else by standing still. Uh, right, says that you can't murder somebody else by standing. Right, you that um, you can't murder somebody else by standing still. Um, Tosa says that you can murder somebody else by standing still because you can't make the active choice. Right, the the case Tosa's case is if somebody says, "Can I throw you on that baby?" Uh, right, the Chazish says that's no good because that somebody else commits the active murder. Then, so the Chazish constructs this fascinating case. I really enjoyed drawing it, where you're standing on a on a ledge. There's a baby underneath. It's kind of macabre. Right? There's a baby underneath you. If you fall off the ledge, the baby will cushion your fall enough <laughs> that the baby will die, not you. And you're standing on the ledge, and there's a, and you know that you won't be able to keep your balance for long because right because you can because it's too narrow, in ordinary wind. So that's where Tosfos says. that's where says that you are obligated to. Um, Tosfos says that in that case you, you don't have to move off the ledge, you know, right? Um, and you can right, and you can choose your you can choose your life over the babies. And Rukhaim Selec Salve- came along and said, No, that's wrong. You don't understand how this principle works. It has nothing to do with people. We're briskers, right? So we take all the people out of the conversation. All the things, right? Everything, right? Salechik famously said about his uncle that he removed all the pots and pans from your idea. So we're going we to remove all the people. Right? What Rukhayan Seleccic says, if I understand it correctly, is that what this teaches what that what the the simple story teaches us is that the Avera of Ritzicha and many and any other Avera that involves Shvichut Damim is not included in the exception of the Haibah. So it doesn't matter, right? So, right? so the specific circumstances don't matter. At the end of the day, right, what it teaches us is that we're back to saying you have to die whenever you're confronted by the Avera. And the, right? so the way Rav Chaim ends up is really not about people. Rav just says that we ask the question should the exception of the Chaibahem apply to the iser of Ritziha? And the answer is since you can't know in advance whose blood is redder, therefore we have to make the decision that the law is right, that the that the exception doesn't apply, and therefore you can never commit murder to save right to uh, right to save a life. Right? So with a lumdish way of with a lumdish way of um, of explaining it. Yes about passive and not, like, active person, passive motive, Right, so, but so the, that's, not Naqqimita is, the Tosva says that all that matters is whether you're passive or active, because you're choosing, right? And, and Rechaim says all that matters is whether you're committing reszicha or not. Passive, active, doesn't matter to him at all. All <laughs> <Okay>, right, <laughs> every single case. As Rechaim says, all, the, the question you have to ask yourself in each case is, is this an iser that is not included, that is not included in the Khaibah. And Tosfos says, "What I have to ask myself is, I can't decide, so I just have to stand still, whatever the consequences of standing still are." Yes. What if in that example you gave, it wasn't a baby that was pushing the pulse, but an elderly person, and they said, to "Do it." I'd rather you do it. So like, let's let's work on the assumption that um, that people right that in Tosfos's world they can't say that. <sighs> All right now that relates to a, a much deeper question about whether you're ever allowed, right, whether you're allowed to, whether right, whether you're allowed to be Moser or for things that are not your Yerigvayavo. Right. And that's also Mahlokit Rishonim, which I don't want to get into now. Okay, yes. Um okay, remember being a His question is it in us isr of as long as it's in isr, he's of Shrikut Damim, that's the way he frames it, right? Um and there's a whole debate about how what exactly that is, or it's Mahlok in the Rav and the Rav and his brother Rivar and Salavichik exactly what what, pro, what prohibitions it applied to. Uh, which we'll talk about in in a couple of minutes. So Ram Salvatik Damn is about anything? Well, Rechai is a grandfather, right? He said that it applies to all sins that are classified as having in them an element of shvichud damim, but then the question of which sins are included in that became a dispute among his grandchildren. And we'll talk about exactly how, right, how that plays out in a minute. Okay, so I'm going to, we're getting late, so I'm going to have to run through a little bit, Then you, but I'll, I'll stay for a few minutes afterwards, then you'll have my, ah, this is a good time. Here. <laughs> Names and email addresses would be great, and then your uh, my email address is easily is easily uh, accessible from there as well. I'm happy to, to respond to questions. Um, okay, so I wanted to argue as follows. Um, Rav Chaim based on this logic, says the following. He says that um, he says that why why does Ben Pesora say that they should both drink the water? That doesn't make any sense at all. How do you, Right, if if Ben Pesora held that really you can't choose among lives, right? Before, because was Rasha, that's what you should hold. You can't choose among lives. So where do you get splitting the water? So Rechaim claims as follows. What should really happen, according to Ben Pesora, is that you should have to hand the water back and forth. Because I can't choose my life, you can't choose your life, and the water stays undrunk and they both die. But that's ridiculous. And so there's another principle introduced in halacha, which is that even when you have really important principles, you don't follow them and they yield ridiculous results. That's also a very important principle. You Pardon? His results still so Yeah, maybe it's not, right? So that's the great question whether you find it more intuitive that more more intuitive that um, that you split the water um, than that they both die, right? Is that really that much better? It depends whether you think Hayesha'a count or not. But here's it, right? But other people come along and ask. But there were elsewhere. Why about flip? Why don't they flip a coin instead? Maybe that would be better than splitting it. Once we don't allow it ridiculous results, why don't they flip a coin? Okay. Now I want to talk about it. go back to triage. Yeah. Splitting the water. It makes sense to me because okay, you split it. But they don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. I understand that, Right. Right. Maybe splitting the water makes sense in a way. Right. Because right. Because because a miracle could happen. Right. You could oh, could be a mirage. Could be a mirage, a helicopter could come, yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't, mean, right, that's the question whether the case is supposed to be real or not or whether it's just a thought experiment. In the real world that's true in a thought experiment we can imagine that there's a barrier around it that prevents helicopters from coming in, whatever it may be. It's the last bottle of water in the world, whatever it would be. You know, they they'll have to hunt for eight days afterwards to find water without the, which has sufficient kosher symbols on it, to be, whatever, whatever, whatever it may be. Okay, so what Rav Moshe's triage results is essentially is flipping a coin. Because it just depends which entrance the penicillin comes through. Right? Right at the right at the two doors here, right? So the penicillin comes through that door, you get it, the penicillin comes through that door, you get it. So Rabush is essentially saying, right, that when you have that with regard to third parties, the result is flip a coin. Now if you have a situation where you can't flip a coin, maybe right you right you can't write where you're already confronted by it because they're, they're both people in the room. Maybe he would say split it. I don't know. I don't know what Moshe says. If, right, if you get at the moment, to right, asks the question the moment I got the penicillin, there were two patients exactly equidistant from me. What do I do now? Flip a coin. Okay. Flip a coin. Or have a race. Um, right? Say everyone think of a number between 1 and 10, whoever is closer to mine. right? Some way of introducing randomness. Does that work? Does that get us us results? So on the one hand, it's really nice to have a result in which which you don't discriminate among people. On the other hand, what if it turns out that the first patient has a a kind of disease that responds poorly to penicillin? It responds, but only about 10% of patients who get the penicillin survive. And the patient across the room has a disease that 80% of patients survive. So who, so who are you to choose? Okay, so now what I would happen? So right now we have we gave you two ways of thinking about this principle. One way of thinking about this principle is, is it's just Balabhatish. Front fronted by choice between people you can't choose. Second is lamdish. as nothing right the peep, right the people are gone. The only question that we have to ask is, am right am I allowed to violate this law to save right to save this life? Third way of thinking about it is philosophically, okay, philosophically and particularly. I want to argue, you can think about it in terms of the, the, the philosopher Immanuel Kant. And um, right, let's think about it, it, was it can't act in such a way that expresses the, the value, that one person is more valuable than another. Well, that's in Afgane, So here's the possible um, look it. The, um, the Torah in one place says, v'rapo in Parashat Mishpatim. And the Gemara says, "Mikan rapot. Now, Here's what gives doctors permission. So the whole question is, why do doctors need permission? Isn't it obvious? Um, right, that's right. So there's a whole that was a whole question in, among medieval philosophers, often like, why is it permitted to heal? Right, since punishment is a, right, since sickness is a punishment from God, aren't you acting against God's wishes when you heal when you heal the sick? So we reject that, although there's a whole ten, whole thing about the Ramban, uh, where the Ramban seems to say something odd about uh, whether it's lachachil or not. Uh, right maybe we really should just pray but we live right but because we're not on that madrigo so we allow back, right okay you can read the ramban yourself and see if you're convinced by this or not uh, as part of the general um, you know, general progress of technology that we tend not to that we tend not to see that as a sensible position um, so maybe doctors are allowed to use their um, their instruments and their supplies in the most efficacious way possible. Right, I mean, kind telling each other that means that doctors are allowed to be as efficient as they can be with their supplies. And then if I give the penicillin to the patient who needs it, right, who is most likely to survive because of it, I'm not valuing their life. I'm using the medicine efficiently. And even though the result is, I'm making a choice among lives, right? Balbatishli, I'm choosing one life over another. But philosophically, I'm not making a claim that one life is more valuable than another. I'm using my resources efficiently. Now that is how almost all uh, medical ethics in hospitals work. Now, as Diane Denschuk says at the end of his um, at the end of his uh, article, that almost right that they end, that that they uh, they they they. Um, distribute medical supplies in accordance with the with the best efficacy of the medication. So The question is, is that a rejection of our fundamental principle because they are constantly choosing among lives. And where this came to head most recently was during COVID. And whether you would say, right, and so some people Poskin, that um, the rule among ventilators is that the first patient who comes into the hospital gets the ventilator and then you can't remove it. Now, it turned out that ventilation didn't make anywhere near as much a difference as we thought anyway, but let's work in, the, in the, the, the semi-fictional universe at the beginning of COVID, and we thought that ventilators were really important for saving lives. So some people said that the obvious psak is that, um, right, you, can, you, that you have to read, like Reb Moshe, that you, all you can do is slip a coin, and slipping a coin means we have a patient comes in first. And other people found that uh, extremely uncomfortable. So they did really interesting things like by claiming that a patient on their way is just as if they're already there. And so you can judge among all the patients who are on, among all the patients who are on the way, and then you can give it to the one who needs it most. But okay, why can you give it even if they're all in the same time? Why, right, why, why do that instead of flipping a coin, right? So that created all sorts of issues. And then some people said, that's not enough. Even the patients who are statistically likely to come, you can distribute, right? which obviously at this point, they had completely rejected the notion that actually it's supposed to be random. But the challenge is, right, so once you allow this, right, so I'm arguing that you can do it in terms of, right, that the way to do it, because I'm thinking philosophically, not legally or, right, or balbatishly, I'm thinking philosophically, enough. and I'm arguing that the making a philosophic claim. so that, right, so I don't have to get into any of these, right, any of these, of these complicated things, I can just bask in that hospitals can make decisions in accordance with according to the medical efficacy. Um, but then the question came is, but what happens if you have two people, the medicine does exactly the same for them, just one of them is 20 years old, and one of them is 80. Or one of them has another condition that will, in any case, likely kill them within, let's say, two years. We so don't have to get into issues. So, right, so right, so at that point, right, what do we do? There was a Hava Mina in a published Shiva that actually right, where somebody wanted to suggest. Somebody may have suggested that um, actually you should give it to the younger patient first or the patient with a better life expectancy first. And uh, I sent a message to one of the students of that person saying, do you really mean that? After all, the Gemara says, who says your butt is better than his? And they said, no, that never meant that. And they changed the show. So I don't know if anybody actually ever meant it or not. Um, so I wanted to argue that um, that that's not direct. That That decision has nothing to do with the efficacy of the medication that is, it has to do with the outcomes right? That's a utilitarian position right what's best for the world not what does the medicine do most there's a counterclaim like what happens right? does he really want to give the medicate right give the ventilator to a patient who's going to die of cancer the next day because it solves the covid problem and so in terms of the right the use of the medication right so that right so every every system you come up with um will have challenges like this but, um, but I think there was a, I think it was a significant advance to be able to think about it philosophically. i um, to you know, think it philosophically as opposed to, um, yeah, so we have 13 minutes, so I'm gonna have to rush through truth more thing then we'll start to the question, right? Um, so right, so there, I, th- I thought it was a significant advance philosophically to be able to think, right? To, to be able to think about it, it, it gave a way, I thought, for doctors to be able to function in good conscience. Um, and to be and to, and to nonetheless to hold that this is a, the central position of, of the central principle ethical principle of Judaism is that you can't choose among lives. Okay, I'll give you another example, which is a little bit um, more out there. Uh, we're talking about brain death. Um, so let's assume, because it's true, that brain death isn't death. But you can disagree with me. Obviously, many many people have disagreed about this. But let's, I'll, I'll make a historical claim. The PSOC, the original PSOC, many people have since passed on different ground. The original PSOC that brain death was death was based on an incorrect claim about, the, about what brain death measured. They thought it measured the um, complete lysis of the brain. There are no brain cells left. There's no electrical activity in the brain. That's false, right? There is, a, there is electrical activity in the brain. Actually, like not, no organ ever really actually dies at the time of death. That's a whole interesting question generally. You always have individual cells that survive longer. And secondly, the hypothalamus survives which is part of the brain but, but regulates the endocrine system and not the neurological system. Really interesting things. Let's assume it's not death. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time on this about five, six years ago, I think. And at the end of the day, I concluded brain death wasn't death. And then I asked myself, so if somebody comes and asks me, am I allowed to accept an organ? Would I say, no, you have to die? Because taking the organ from, the other, from a brain death patient is murder? Because that follows. It's choosing one life. I of it. it's, choosing, it's choosing one life over another, right? How can I can't choose one life over another. If it's not death, then it's choosing one life over another, and that's really evil. Uh, and yet I, you know there's that, 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 a really possibly wrong sock. The really possibly wrong suck is to say, well, it's a suffix whether it's death. So therefore Jews are allowed to accept organs, but not donate them. Because donate them is active and accepting organs is passive. Right, so that's the really, really wrong result. Okay, I'm just going to say that up front, right? And that's about as, as clear a violation of the principle that you can't choose one life over another, another as imaginable, even though it makes perfect legal sense. I'm making the argument, because it's a suffolk, right? A suffolk, I decide right, each way. Right, so that's why it makes, I'm really not taking questions for the next 10 minutes, like I'm just wondering, right? Uh, that's right, so why it makes it, right? Thinking philosophically about halacha changes the psaq because it's a perfectly good legal argument that is in, that is impossible philosophically and you can see how post can, right whether whether post can care about that makes an enormous difference. Okay, so I reached this question and I said to myself I don't think I could tell somebody that it was utter to live because it right by murdering right, by, by murdering a a, um, a brain dead patient. Um that was a problem though, but I think but I can't I can't let Say that one life is more valuable than another. So I came up with the following argument: there are two stages to the argument. Uh, one stage of the argument, which would take too, which is too long to play out here, uh, is that there are actually there are there is a class of people whom you can kill for their own good, and that class of people are the people whose souls are imprisoned in their bodies as opposed to inhabiting them. And I argue that that is what the language is taken from Chaim David Levi. The um, sea and the this is what the what the post can call a man aruch. Somebody who's taking a very long time. Dying. Let's assume that I'm right about that. Okay, which is a big, big thing. <laughs> Given that I said is well, okay. So let's see what's happening. Wait, there's a another understanding of the way Kant Kant, Kant under, uh, frames the um, what, what he calls the categorical imperative, the fundamental principle of ethics, is that what it means is. I cannot treat one life as a means, one human life as a means, and another human life, another as an end. So if I were to say that I'm taking your organs to save my life, and I'm killing you to save me, that's a violation of that principle. But what happens, which is what happens in this case, what happens if the truth is, you would be dead a long time ago if I cared about you? I would have drawn life support from you, withdrawn life support from you a long time ago. The reason brain dead patients are alive is because we keep them on life support so that they can donate organs so we don't kill them to save another life we keep them alive to save another life we kill them for themselves and therefore it's not a violation of the principle because i'm not using one life as a means to save another life that life is already gone for all practical purposes i'm keeping it alive to save another life and then at such point as I don't need to keep it alive anymore, I don't. But it's not a violation of principle of using one person as a means of another person as an end. Okay, that could be another nafkamina of thinking philosophically as opposed to, uh, as opposed to um, in formal legal terms or as opposed to in just really practical terms. And I think that there's a whole range I've tried to make this argument in terms of uh, what's, what sorts of um, CRISPR mutations might be allowed? You might be allowed to induce in, uh, in embryos. Uh, about uh, whether you're allowed to have physician assisted suicide laws, uh, right? I think that that all sort of areas where there's halacha and there hasn't been halacha previously, right? We're confronting these modern questions. All over, I think that taking this as a fundamental principle allows you to construct halacha and differently. Okay, so i will end with one with um, one question. And uh, then I'll give a brief peroration. I hope that the sign-up sheet is going around, by the way. If it isn't, then please make sure it's going around. Um, yeah, so here's like one way which you can really tell what universe your post-Vig is living in. Is when I ask if I say, the Gemara says, who says your life better than his? Do you assume that that is true even when one of the parties is Jewish and the other one isn't? Right, that's a radically different moral universe. And it changes halacha in so many things. And if you take it as a principle, right, so then you, right, you, if you take it as a given that the halacha is that you're not allowed to distinguish among human lives, right, there's so many areas of halacha, right, have to, right, you know, only, the only one kind of outcome that's okay. Whereas if you take it as a given that's only among Jewish lives, then we have the question, maybe non-Jews have, are also bound by this or not, right, are they allowed to choose among lives or not, you get a totally different halacha. Okay, so it's a really important question to ask, like, which, which, which halachic universe do you want to live in? Uh, I'm pretty explicit. I live in the universe where it's, I think that for, for it to be a Svara, it has to apply to all human beings. Um, but I understand that there are other people who don't. Um, the really, some of the really interesting things are the people who don't think that and yet still have a moral instinct that makes certain outcomes impossible. Um, other people just don't, right? So some people are perfectly happy with outcomes saying, yeah, Jews can't. Jews can receive organs, but not donate them. What's the big deal? Has well, right? to do with burial. So there are differences. I can't teach halacha that no differences among Jews and non-Jews. That's right. That's not right. There are differences, but I can teach halacha that takes it as a given that when it comes to the value of life, just as I can do the same thing in terms of gender. Right, right, whether, right, whether it's obvious that that mission harios can't possibly relate to life-saving or it's not obvious. Right, so it's not only that there's a, right. even if you accept the argument that this is a fundamental principle, what halacha is matter, right, changes enormously based on what you think that principle is that's supposed to be intuitive. And then, uh, as my friend said to me yesterday, like, oh, that's a really radical claim. Like There are all sorts of great post-game who never got halacha right at all because they missed st- stage one. And everything you do is going to be uh, is going to be wrong because because right? because it contradicts your fundamental principle, uh, whether it yields absurd results or it yields immoral results. Okay, so what I wanted to give you is an experience of what it's like to think about halacha when the outcomes matter substantively. Right, that halacha is supposed to be right and true, and it's not just that whatever halacha. Says is right and true. It's that you have, to, right, you have to test whether halacha is right and true? And arguing based on the Gemara and Chazal, that as opposed to this being my radical interjection of subjectivity into the halachic process, this is actually what the authentic halachic process is supposed to be. And it's how Chazal did it. Now, there's a the right question is, but then how do we know we're doing it right? Or how do we give them a decent chance of doing it right? right? Those are all great questions. Um, sometimes there's a crisis about two or three weeks into the program. <laughs> Um, and um, But most people get through it, and it turns out that, yeah, you know, that, that's the right question to have, and really the only way to, um, to get through it is to do it, and then see, you know, and some of you will come out with less confidence correctly, and some of you will get more confidence correctly, and some of you will get that wrong. That's always the risk of the system. Some people have confidence who shouldn't, and some people won't have confidence who should. Um, but I think this is what halacha is supposed to be. I think this is what Talmud Torah is supposed to be. Uh, the outcomes are supposed to matter. You're allowed to have, right, You're supposed to have presumptions. You're supposed to allow those presumptions to be challenged. You have to function in a universe in which there are fundamental principles, and yet there's, uh, there is a legal system that's allowed to do things that at least for the moment are called hooking. And so sometimes there are going to be outcomes in the system that you just don't make sense to, even though you have a drive to make sense of the system. Okay, that's what I try to teach. Um, so if you like that, I hope you'll uh, get all the different terrain that you'll consider replying uh, to come learn with me. And with that, so there are lots of questions that were held up, and I have 10 minutes before a turn into a pumpkin. You had the first question. You had a question. Do you want to ask it now? Yeah. i oh, sorry. I was just um, it seems to me, maybe in the situation that a lot of the scheme that rely on the idea that making a, that being passive and not making an active choice otherwise is it considered a choice but I would argue that even being passive is inherently... Sure, that's a great, that's a great philosophic discussion, and I argue in my Brain Death article that, actually, it's in there also, that most of the reliance on active-passive distinctions in the context of life-saving is an error. It's a misinterpretation of a, of a, of a, um, whatever, the blanking on the name, the, the... Whatever, the one of the posing the, on the side of the riff, I don't know what of, it was. a shibale, I like it, and then it becomes, darn it, armor. Sorry. I <laughs> um, get the word. But uh, yeah, that's a right. and it's part of the, You know, once you introduce philosophic analysis into these issues, so you'll ask Gashas. That uh, I remember uh, was my most fond memories of Yeshiva, was Reverend Soloveitchik giving a share on uh, Psychratia in a series. Um, right, whether it's considered psikreshe, if you do an action that if you do it once is not inevitable, but if you do it a hundred times, it's just the odds go to 0 God, God's go to a hundred percent. So do we go. Do, do we go by action? Right. Each action is not a psikreshe, but the series is a psikreshe. And I had just read Bertrand Russell's treatment of causality on it, exactly that issue, and I was having lots of fun circulating, uh, right, circulating Russell's theory of causality and how it related, how it relates to halacha about psychratia. Good questions. Yes. Um, how do you more the the that? I don't, I think, you're right. I don't think they can, but I can But there are post who do, because they, they take that premise differently. Or because they don't think, right, there's so two ways to do it. One is you just, you just reject that premise, and you think that it's all a saying, how do you, right, who says one Jew's blood is better than another? Or alternatively, that they think that it's okay if the mechanics of halacha yield a result that is philosophically untenable, you follow the halacha anyway. Okay. Yes, yeah, two very. You had a question also, right? No, you didn't have it. So good. Yeah, that's a great question. There was a famous, right, famous uh, case of an Israeli soldier who threw himself on a grenade to save. And there's a whole book uh, of halachic essays written in his memory of people trying to, right, trying to justify, um, right, um, committing suicide to save someone else's life. And you can read them and see if you're convinced that Yeah, and generally, we, right. So there's a general machlokut in that which is one, you know, where it starts from, which is that that there is a position in Tosfot that holds that you are always allowed to be to be Moser nefesh for any avera, and, right? And we valorize you for doing that, whereas the Ramama thinks that it's right probably that it's Asr. So if you pass in like that position in Tosfot, then it's much easier to do, get there. Awesome. And I think that's what you're yeah, right, so now we get to trolley problems, right? So that, you know, that's uh, a tell you know, a funny story, um, maybe it'll be funny to you, I don't know, but uh, years ago a prominent, liberal, a prominent liberal rabbi got up at a major conference and said that he had been convinced that he couldn't deal with chosenness anymore because all human lives were infinite and therefore all human lives were equal. And I raised my hand and said, but you know, there's mahlogan among mathematicians whether all infinites are equal. <laughs> and no one was interested, for some reason, in debating right, whether the claim that all human life is infinite was, was equivalent to the claim that, you know, that, and so that's, so even though I think that it is true of all human lives individually, but you can argue, right, but is eight times infinity greater than infinity? Okay, good question, yeah, all right, both of you are entitled to debate that question. Uh, and is there a reduction of sort of, like, I'm willing to say one eight, no, but one in the, Million, right? That's already hard, right? So right. So the question of how rigorously you're willing to be philosophically you know philosophy also yields absurdity sometimes. Right. Those are those are great questions. And then the whole principle about the doctors choosing what yeah. would be most like uh, the most effective, is that the same idea for families who would send one child us say away from Germany to state Paolo Class and Yeah, I don't know. I, I you know that's the, uh, I don't think that's because I don't think there's any external efficiency there. I don't know that there's any, you know, I know that, you know, that on a formal logic basis, I don't know that there's any result, that there's anything you can do other than flip coin. But it seems like at least that you it being not it wasn't always a coin, it was like, you know, that you to that the day. That's right, because it's hard for people to live life and death, though. But the other end, right, you know, and sometimes it's you're the one I love best, right, and that we understand is evil. All right, so the question is, right? So we allow, right, So the question is, to what extent we're trying to allow, allow some, we're trying to allow a certain kind of abstract subjectivity, and not allow um, a certain kind of, uh, right? A certain kind, a certain kind of um, you know, emotional subjectivity. But that's me. You know, my friend yesterday wanted to argue that maybe everybody should be allowed to save their child's life in front of anyone else's child's life, because that's not claiming that the life, is... well, we had an argument. I wanted to argue what he was saying is, it's not that the life is more valuable; it's that the life is more valuable to me. And as long as everybody's entitled, right? But I don't know, I have three children, or right? I have four children, right? I can't, count in-laws, right? I have six children, right? You only have one, right? So I get the safe, right? <laughs> it's dicey once you let that in. And then for the, the I you said that you only keep someone alive, when you so that the organs. Is yeah. that why keep it people? Yeah, otherwise we turn, patients whose organs are not, um, are not in shape, unless the families insist, patients' whose organs are not donable. If they're, de- they're brain-dead, we declare them dead. We take them off the machines, all right? That's the one of one of the goals of brain death is to, right, is that's all the how much of it is, right, is, because what the tension is, maybe it's just a way to clear the machines for the next person. And that would be choosing one life over another. Exactly, yes? Um, it's also like a question on that, on the brain death. Do you think that the issue would be with Killing using a person's life as a means for another person's life. And that's why we can't kill somebody. But in the case of a brain dead patient, their soul is more trapped in their body. But then isn't keeping them alive also using their life as a means to another person's life? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, whether keeping them alive is also a philosophic violation. That's a really good question. I tend to think that no killing them is not the same thing as keeping them alive in that purpose, but I agree with you that it's a weakness in my formulation. Um and I gotta work it out before I write the book. Very good. Very good. I agree that it's a weakness of information. Yes. So I take that the principle you can't choose among lives as the ultimate being out. And I and, and 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 I try to minimize the exceptions to it. And my right, so whenever, it's, whenever everything seems to be an exception to it, I always take that as I always take that as a as, as a Khiddush. And I take it right that's that's the way I'm thinking about it like case brain that's right and I try to write, I want to explain those cases narrowly so they don't so they don't expand uh, right those, those are the ones that always have to be explained that's my given all right um, last chance to sign up if you haven't already it's a pleasure learning with you all and I hope that uh, we'll get to be in touch and learn together again thank you you Thank you.